The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Welcome to a new episode of Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. I'm Reinhard Schumacher and I will briefly introduce you to today's episode, which centers around the life and work of the Dutch economist Jan Tinberge, or Tinbergen as he is often pronounced in the English-speaking world. Tinberge was born in 1903 and died aged 91 in 1994. He is best known for his role in the early development of econometrics, as well as his work on economic development and planning. Tinberge received the first Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences in 1969, an accolade he shared with Ranga Frisch. This episode is based on the recording of an event that was hosted by the Erasmus School of Economics at the Erasmus University of Rotterdam to celebrate the publication of the biography of Tinberge titled Jan Tinberge and the Rise of Economic Expertise. The author of this biography is our co-host Urban Decker. In the following, you will hear the introduction to the book launch event by Ayo Klamer, Professor of the Economics of Art and Culture at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, followed by a talk on Tinbergen's contribution to econometrics by James Heckman, Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago. After this talk, Ayo Klamer will lead the discussion with Heckman and Decker and two further guests. First, Philipp Hans Franzes, Professor of Applied Econometrics and of Marketing Research and the Econometric Institute at the Erasmus School of Economics. And second, Esther Miriam Sand, Professor of Economic Theory and Policy at Radboud University, Nijmegen. The event ends with a short Q&A. After these introductory words, I will now let you enjoy the recording. Yeah, it's a great honor for me to be able to moderate a session on the publication of the biography of Jan Timberger by Erwin Decker. Um, I didn't study at the Erasmus University, but at the University of Amsterdam, econometrics. And uh, the inspiration was at that time when I was a high school student, it was Jan Timberger. And it is wonderful to see how Jan Timberger comes to life in this great biography. And I'm also uh, very pleased uh, to, uh, to say that uh, Jim Hackman, uh, a well-known economist from the University of Chicago, got also interested in the work of Jan Timberge, wrote an essay uh, about uh, the work of Jan Timberge, the social engagement of Jan Timberge, which also he displays in his own work. And so it is um, a great honor also that he is also going to share his thoughts on uh, Jan Timberge with us. After that, I will have a discussion with, uh, among others, Philip uh, Hans Franse and with Esther Miriam Sent, and of course the author himself, Erwin Decker. And you have the opportunity to pose your questions at the Q&A. And please, please, I welcome you to do so to liven our session at the end. But first, I would like to welcome uh, Jim Heckman to share his thoughts about uh, Jan Timberge and his legacy. Well, I'm honored to be here. Um, I would prefer not to give too much of a formal lecture, but to describe uh, what I think the impact of Tenbergen was and what this book does in terms of uh, providing uh, deeper insight into what motivated Tenbergen. And uh, 
I think the book, as has been said, is well-written. I think it actually presents an interesting perspective on the life of a person who in mainstream economics is probably better known for his work on econometrics and social planning, uh, development planning later in his career. Uh, but there's certainly a body of work going back in econometrics to the 1930s. There's a, an econometric technique called indirect least squares, which is still used today, uh, which was pioneered by Tenbergen in the course of his work in terms of developing the structure of, uh, of, of the uh, uh, understanding the economy and trying to do empirical work. There's an interesting tradition in Holland, or in, in, in the Netherlands, I should say, uh, where much of the work in economics has been motivated by very empirical concerns, uh, people trying to solve social policy problems. I speak now from Tenbergen on. It also includes Tile, who was, of course, a student of Tenbergen. Tile was my colleague here for many years, and we taught some classes together. And uh, uh, Tile and Tenbergen both had this profound motivation. They were different in their perspectives about social policy in particulars, but they were both motivated by trying to understand the data and to devise social policies that were empirically based. And I consider that to be an interesting theme that runs throughout the book and the life of Tenbergen. I mean, to me, it's kind of amazing. It's something we don't see much these days in, uh, in, econ in economics, that he did not have training, per se, in economics. I mean, he didn't take a PhD in economics from anybody. Maybe Paul Ehrenfest, who was working in thermodynamics and was a world-renowned physicist in Leiden, a uh, friend of Einstein, friend of Fermi, uh, a, a real player in the world of nuclear physics uh, and physics generally in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, so that, I guess, in Aaron, for, I had learned only from this book that Aaron Fest had developed on his own interest in uh, economics and economic policy and seeing the relevance of applying uh, economic models, uh, st physical models, models of physics to understand the economy. But uh, a recurring, but, it, but it's quite interesting then that Tinbergen's training, and I gather much actually of Tile's training, although Tile was a student of Tinbergen, that many, uh, these two famous Dutch economists gained their traction mainly from trying to understand empirical problems. Uh, it's also true, of course, another famous uh, Dutch economist, Charlene Koopmans, had a, had a background in physics as well and converted himself from a mathematical physicist to a, an econometrician and then later a major economic theorist. So uh, it's an interesting tradition of the transition from physics to uh, to, to economics, but using the tools of physics and the standards of physics. In other words, the standards of trying to look at the structure of uh, data to build models and understand how well they explain the data or motivated by economic problems, but using data to test those models. And so there's no question that that's very, very uh, central, it seems to me, to the history of uh, Dutch econometrics. I can't speak for the current state today. I don't know everybody. I know a lot of very good Dutch econometricians and economists who are doing similar things, 
linking data and models, and going forward and testing. But what I find interesting about Tinbergen, and when I read the book, I, I felt in some sense, you know, there's a famous story about Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton allegedly was motivated by, when he did his physics, he was motivated by the desire to actually uh, to, to, to understand the nature of God. He thought he was discovering God's mind. He was a deist. I mean, he really had this idea of the, of the world being designed by God. And I think many physicists, even to this day, think about it in that way. But I think the way that was taken, I took from the book, the way that Tinbergen approached these problems, it's interesting to have the background and understanding that Tinbergen was deeply motivated by social questions. There were many economists in the 1930s who entered the profession because of the Great Depression, who really wanted to understand the economy in a way that had not been understood, and who, like Tenbergen, really believed that there needed to be some way to plan economies, to gain central planning, to try to rectify some of the worst excesses of capitalism that had led to the Great Depression. So Tenbergen was in part of a group in that regard, but he stood out from the group because not only did he have this motivation, like Newton in some ways, but unlike Newton, what he did was that he had developed ideas, and he developed even the framework for understanding the questions that were in front of the economy. So he wasn't looking for God so much. Maybe the book actually suggested maybe he was looking for uh, divine replacement in some sense, social planning and uh, government policy planning, but some way to essentially right the affairs of state and to correct what Tinbergen, I felt, felt strongly about, namely poverty, inequality, and social injustices that he saw first in, the, in, the, in, uh, in Holland and then as he went around the world to developing countries. But it's a remarkable career. And the part that I find most charming, most important, charming may be the wrong word, but the, the most important motivation, in my opinion, was that Tinbergen had this deep willingness to understand the other side and to really try to synthesize knowledge. So he clearly had an understanding of the relevant Marxist economic theory of the day, which was very, very common. People like Kaleski, there were many people around who were in Oscar Lange and so forth. There were many people who were really formalizing Marx in a way that hadn't been done before and providing content and in Tenbergen's language and the language of a lot of physicists by providing a framework for having a meaningful discussion about competing points of view, meaningful not only theoretically, but meaningful empirically in the sense of understanding what should be changed, what we should learn, what is in fact a valid criticism, what isn't, and how we should go forward. But I felt in reading this book that I really came to a deeper appreciation of what Tenbergen was all about. He was deeply socially motivated. And you can see that in his writings. I mean, I think what, what it's easy to overlook some of Tenbergen's great contributions. He did, of course, develop one of the first business cycle models for the League of Nations. And his discussion of the League of Nations model triggered a whole line of research. I mean, back in the late 30s, you had people like Keynes, you had people like Milton Friedman, the young Milton Friedman and many others who were very actively engaged 
in reading Tenbergen's work, seeing how we could do better, and you know, raising a whole set of questions about how do you build a model from data and then use the same or similar data to test that model. So there was a deep, deep set of issues, but the crucial thing, and this seemed to be the recurring feature of Tenbergen's work, is that he was deeply motivated by the problem. And the frameworks were developed to create a understanding, a deeper understanding. And it wasn't just the kind of aesthetic enterprise, it was really to create an understanding that would lead to policy. So Tenberg, I think it's his early socialist training, his early sense of social responsibility. It sounds like the Tenbergen family, which of course produced two Nobel laureate for children, uh, was really quite a remarkable breeding ground. And in terms of contemporary uh, discussions about family, early childhood, <laughs> uh, he, he was heavily influenced, I gather, by Montessori methods, and by methods that are still current today, the Waldorf School, Rudolf Steiner, and the like. So there was a sense in which this early progressive education, this sense of duty to the larger world, motivated him. But what's interesting is how he responded to those problems. So instead of just writing polemics or writing advocacy pieces, what he did, not just looking at the data in a casual way, which is a common practice then and now, he really built new models, precise models, because he has training as a physicist. He wanted to lay things out clearly so that people who understood his work could criticize the work and improve it. I think he was always going forward and trying to create a better world and a better economics in the course of this. So I found this book to be, it's kind of like you know, reading the mind of Newton, but understanding that what you're doing is this man was deeply concerned about social policy, and it shows up through every one of his works. I have, uh, I, 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 there's one piece of his work which I think is neglected, I wrote about in, my, in, in the essay I wrote on him. Uh, early on uh, in, in the 1950s, he wrote this incredibly insightful paper on uh, the pricing of, in, it, was about, it was in a German journal, Weltbrich Schiffler's archive, uh, and he was on the theory of income distribution. And if you look at it, it's a modern theory of income distribution in competitive markets. He was really talking about how prices of heterogeneous goods uh, would actually then translate into incomes that individuals uh, would earn. And then not only did he write these models down, he estimated the models and he fit the models. I have a personal story to tell about that paper. I was in Rotterdam years ago at a conference. It was with Tom McCurdy, who's now at Stanford. The two of us were there at a conference and Tinbergen came and we commended him on this paper, which really was the precursor to what we call modern hedonics. In fact, in many ways, it's not just the precursor, it's the foundation of modern hedonic pricing models. The later models became more specialized and in some sense less inclusive. And it's to me, it's very interesting that in fact, in recent work on the pricing of multi-attribute goods and the pricing of services in the labor market, that in fact, the Tinbergen framework has been rediscovered and in, in enhanced by people like Ilsa Lindenlaub and so forth at Yale. So what we can see is the structure of of, of engagement with real problems led to real science. 
And I think this is a general rule that comes out of knowledge uh, creation, that really it's the engagement of real problems and trying to understand them precisely and understanding its limits. So in his later books on income distribution, Tenbergen used these models. And he used these models to suggest particular social policies to try to attack inequality and to promote social mobility. So I think what's, what's an interesting synthesis in this book, it provides us with a deep understanding that here was a man who was a pacifist, he was an active pacifist to the end. I guess he grew up right across from the Peace Palace and then Hag, and he was definitely influenced by this structure of, uh, of uh, social planning and of well-being, of trying to create a society that was inclusive, that was free of war, that was in some sense utopian socialism. But he did, went about it in a way that was non-polemical. He went about it, and it seems like from what... I only met him this one time. And what was interesting at that one time is that when McCurdy and I were actually complimenting him on the article, he suddenly got up and said, no, no, I have to give you something. So he ran up. He was, he was in, at his university office nearby. He went up to his university office, and he gave us an erratum. And he said, look, the paper has a mistake, and you have to read this paper. You have to read this page. <laughs> and there it was. It was a minor mistake. I mean, some kind of quadratic form that was kind of mistyped. Or This was 1956, this paper, and, and presumed. So this was like in the 1990s. He was so passionate about getting it right and so deeply scientific. But, the, the, but more importantly, it's not just the fact that he was a scholar deeply committed to knowledge. What percolates through the book and through all the writings I was familiar with as a graduate student, and I know today, I think it's still very current, although I think the notion of social planning, the way that he forecasted, it, I think that's died out in the mainstream of economics. But I think the models that he used to create models for social planning, those are alive and well today. So I think it's a great occasion to celebrate not only Tenbergen, but the fact that this book is such a nice summary of his work. And uh, unlike most books on economists or a lot of books, period, about people who are primarily known for technical work, it puts him in context. And it gives us a much deeper insight as to what motivated him, why he spent as much time as he did. He spent a lot of time in less developed countries near the end of his life. Again, his concern about poverty his concern about inequality and promoting a society. And so even though some of his lessons, messages have been ignored and neglected, the corpus of economic theory that he created has not been ignored. And I think that, that even though his enthusiasm, he and his fellow laureate, Ragnar Frisch, really strongly believed in central planning in a way that I think has become less fashionable today, nonetheless, he created a framework for thinking constructively about economic policy. And it's interesting that it was so heavily motivated, so deeply motivated by the concern to improve society. And in some sense, I don't want to belittle his contribution, but if you read the life of Marshall and you ask, you know, Marshall, what did Marshall, Marshall wrote on several occasions that his, you know, mostly famous for his work on price theory and industrial organization and and uh, creating a, a whole corpus of economic theory. 
But Marshall, and it's visible in his own career, Marshall was deeply interested in uh, the problems of poverty. And so in getting to the core of the problems of poverty, he had to understand the mechanisms that were producing it. And in that sense, I think it was a very constructive synthesis that was able to straddle the kind of Marxist socialism that was prevalent in some of the social planning circuses, uh, surface, uh, circles and some of the structures of uh, neoclassical economics that were emerging at that time. Tinberg had made a very nice synthesis. And it wasn't just because he was aesthetically motivated, it's because he saw the best in each and tried to create something useful. So I, those are very shallow remarks, and I, I will say that I deeply appreciate and have always appreciated Tenbergen, not just for the econometrics, very important, of course, his theory of economic policy, and his work on development planning. Those showed a, a real willingness and ability to engage with the real world and to enrich economic theory for doing so. So I'll stop at that. Thank you for the opportunity to speak at this occasion. It's a good book. Thank you, uh, Jim. Um, I um, think you gave a very rich uh, picture of uh, Jan Timberger, also how he shows up in the book. I agree with everything you said, except for the last remark that it was shallow, because that it was not. I think you uh, got a lot of deep insights, I think, in the work of Jan Timberger. I have uh, two questions for you. One is, um, this book also shows, and you quite rightly uh, point out that it describes the context, and it brings out also the person of Jan Timberger. And I was uh, sort of wondering to what extent you identify with the person of Jan Timberger, or what do you think uh, in your own work, your own life, uh, it is different for you? You talked a great deal about the social responsibility uh, that Timberger sensed. Uh, what we also witnessed somewhat in, uh, in, that, in your work. So I was just intrigued. Do you identify in any way with Jan Tinbergen? Oh, yes, in, in several ways. When I was an undergrad, I mean, Tinbergen wrote his PhD in physics. And I, I started in that course, uh, but like Dan McFadden did as well, as a matter of fact. And I think Koopmans did write his PhD in physics, or either that or in mathematics, but that's an earlier generation. But, but, where Tinbergen's problem in the time of, in his day, when he began, he was living in the middle of the Depression, or the Depression started, let me put it that way. He was a brilliant student. I saw one line in the book says, you know, that it was, it was rumored that it was both, only two people understood Einstein's theory of general relativity, and that was Tinbergen and Ehrenfest. <laughs> I don't know if that was true, but... It's, he clearly was a brilliant student, and he was really somebody who could make a tremendous uh, impression on anybody. But we started, and he had these earlier roots in socialist uh, camps and works with people. He, it was motivated, quasi-religious. I think it was kind of a secular religion for him, maybe. Yeah. And this became a theme, I think, for many, many economists. <laughs> I used to, used to kid around, you know, a lot of people who were previously deeply religious, sometimes turned to economics or turned to some kind of belief and, and some desire, maybe a secular God, if you will, but in the sense of you know trying to do better in the world and trying to make the world a better place. 
And to an extent, I was. I've written about this. I don't want to go on about myself, but I did have some uh, deep religious roots when I started out. And I, in that sense, I somewhat commiserated with them. But I entered economics at a different time. And that is, it was the 1960s. And it was already at the time when people like Tinbergen and others had already, and Klein, and uh, for that matter, Friedman, and a number of others, Arrow, and so forth, had created this edifice of neoclassical economics. And Kennedy, the President Kennedy, he was a president when I was uh, an undergraduate, uh, was deeply, uh, deeply uh, interested in and implemented economic policy. And so there I had, different from Tenbergen, the sense that economic policy could be, economics could be a successful science in shaping policy. So the, the Kennedy tax cut and the ensuing analysis was very inspiring. So I had a different source of inspiration. And so, and also then I lived through, <laughs> I lived through some of the disappointment that came in the aftermath of those social policies. So there, there, there's a sense that I'm, I can't say I'm Tinbergen, I have very different motivations, but I did sympathize with the fact the training in physics, the training in science, does drive me. I can still see, does to this day. I was last, you know, yesterday over the weekend, we were working on a very detailed appendix to a paper that's really very applied. But nonetheless, we went through a series of very intricate calculations, formal calculations, in an effort to try to understand and create a clear story about a particular intervention that we were studying. And in that sense, I think I share some background with, with Tenbergen. And I always felt that there was this kind of science. And other people feel the same way. I know that there's one of my contemporaries, in fact, my co-laureate, Dan McFadden, um, started out in physics as well. And if you read his works, and you read a lot of his work, he has this same notion of the physicist, you know, going out, doing models, and then looking at data and trying to test the models with data. So there's, there's a practical focus. It's not just an aesthetic enterprise. So that's what I would share with Tenbergen, and I feel a blood brother in that regard. I think he is, he's a powerful source. And also, so in that sense, I feel some, some commonality. I was not a Quaker. <laughs> I thought about becoming one during the Vietnam War, but not for the reasons that Tenbergen wanted to think about being a Quaker. I, I was really trying just to get out of the draft. So, so literally, uh, Tenbergen was a very inspirational figure. Thank you. And but I do think it was amazing uh, how he put this to work. And the other issue, sorry, I'm giving you too long an answer here, but but the the part that I found also motivating, I grew up in the era of civil rights activity. Yeah. I spent a lot of time, spent some time in the South, traveling around, working in the South and so forth and so on. That work deep has deeply influenced my career. And in that sense, the engagement, the understanding, understanding black-white inequality, understanding exactly what the issues are, has motivated my work uh, for decades. I've written on it. Uh, I'm probably less well-known for that in the general economics profession, but it's something that has motivated me and motivates me to this day to understand what are the sources of inequality how things went wrong in the United States, how things might get better and what we might do. So in that sense, I share that uh, the social milieu shaped me in that regard, but it was a totally different context. And uh, 
I think uh, Tenbergen was was truly an amazing force. And uh, the circles in physics that I traveled in, I I knew that I knew people like Robert Oppenheimer and people like that, and studied with them a little bit, but nothing to the extent of Ehrenfest and Einstein and Fermi. There's a great picture showing these guys together, all kind of amazing. I thought. Thanks, uh, Jim. Uh, please, uh, if you have a chance, stay with us uh, because we may. Uh... Okay, now I'd be very curious. I should probably yeah. be turned off the screen, though. I don't. You don't want me to comment. I think on the comment. No, maybe right? uh, at one point. Let's see uh, how it works, and maybe the questions uh, may also be directed at you. But let's see how it works uh, in the next. Uh, okay, fine. No, I'm happy to listen. So um, please, I went on Because too in a way, long, you did already a lot of uh, a big part of the job. Also highlighting uh, the the personality of Jan Timberg and. Uh, I want to now sort of uh, focus on you, uh, Erwin, because you wrote the story. Uh, you spent years studying uh, Jan Timbergen. And, um, and although I thought I knew him, uh, I, I discovered that he is a much um, yeah, richer personality uh, with a background that I knew existed, but I think you give so much more relief to it. And if you allow me one uh, uh, anecdote, Jim told an, uh, uh, told an anecdote. I have also my Timbergen anecdote. I was a young student, um, and Timbergen just won his Nobel Prize a, year, a few years ago, and he came to give a lecture at the University of Amsterdam. The room was packed. I was sitting in the middle. And of course, what you, I think he, uh, talk, his talk was about development economics and the environment. And um, so afterwards, what you do as a young student, you go to the master and try to talk to him. No chance. Um, so I got my bike. And uh, I, what I did pick up is that someone offered him a ride. Uh, that's what I picked up. Uh, I got my bike, and I was biking. And at one point, I saw who was standing there all by himself, waiting for the tram, the great Jan Timbergen. And I was too shy to approach him because uh, that was, of course, would have been a chance. Uh, but that is the modesty that, that's, that characterized the guy. That was one theme that preoccupied you, right? Yeah. So tell me, what, what's, what, what was your most uh, sort of uh, ins your insight in his person? Well, I, I think it's this... It's this image that we have of him, right? Trained in natural science, doing econometrics, um, being a technical person. And the trams, right, from a very young age fascinated right. him, right? His, his family wanted to go out into the woods and um, he was studying the tram schedules, right? So in some sense, he has a very a beta mind, mind right? A, a technical exact mind. But I think that the, the thing that opened uh, him as a person to me was this was the social motivation, but not merely the social motivation, right? Because that can be relatively abstract, right? You can be a socialist in a, in a quite abstract sense. I think that is somewhat true for Charlie Koopmans, who's discussed often in the book, that it remains a somewhat a, a far-fetched utopian vision. And for Timbergen, it was always a problem in the here and now. And it was also a way of um, shaping his own life. So the way that, that uh, Professor Heckman told about his own visits to, to the South or traveling around the South. Yeah. This is what, something that Timbergen did from an early age. Encouraged by his mother, he went to the fishermen in Scheveningen, who were the workers in The Hague, and then in Leiden again. He was sent to, um, to the slums uh, to, to see 
how these people lived. And that was a, a way of understanding. And this is also something he emphasizes, despite being a better guy. He says, no, it's about for staying. We have to understand uh, how people live their lives and how they give meaning to it uh, and how we can um, improve their lives. And in order for that, that's really an, an emphat emphatic pro process, not merely a sort of hard-minded uh, square process. Yeah, and that's, my, my Jim also told the story indeed, as you uh, you refer to. And um, in some way or another, when I was reading your book, I think, think Tim Berge, I think Dere McCloskey is watching too, is a humane economist, right? He has these truly human values that he brings to the field. And I find that very inspiring, the way you write that. In a way, it's also what uh, Jim also uh, brings up. Um, and in a moment, I, I will talk with Philip Han uh, about it because I think that has changed. Uh, but isn't that something that characterized I mean, he was so principled, uh, living a modest life, right? Uh, been dedicated to these social causes throughout his life, why he then also started doing development economics. Yes, 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 absolutely. So that, so that, that shapes his work. But I think that's also the one element where I think there's a dual legacy, right? Yeah. I set that out in the, in the final chapter, is that Tim Bergen left behind the technical legacy, right? In, in the Netherlands, we always joke that we are the only country that has econo econometrics as a separate field, which is due to Tile and Tim Bergen. So there's a sense in which I think his legacy has also been to almost split the two apart, right? To turn e econometrics into a, a science of its own and, and technical economics into a science of its own. And it, it almost being disconnected from this social and quasi-religious uh, inspiration that he was for others, right? And those two groups exist. And so there are two legacies of Tim Bergen. And when you talk with his family or uh, his co-workers from the from the past, right? You you discover that typically they are in one camp or the other. So in some sense, it, it's not that we've lost it, but it it remains hard to connect the two. And sometimes for Tim Bergen, it was also hard to connect the two. When you're a neutral economic expert, you cannot always also let your ideals or uh, your social goals speak. Yeah. And so he also had to balance the two. He also was a hard-headed guy. I mean, I was fascinated by all the conflicts and controversies that he uh, seemed to be drawn in. I mean, Keynes, my other hero, other big reason why I studied economics. And it was much more vicious, actually, the comments that he got, than I, I knew from the correspondence that always is referred to. Yeah. And it was pretty tough. Yeah, it was tough. But, but Tim Bergen was a pacifist, not just in politics, but also in science. So when, when Tim Bergen was criticized, and lots of people tried to draw him out, and sometimes he was even encouraged as a show by, by his friends to respond sort of uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an equally polemic way. But he didn't do so. Right? He said, no, there must be a way that we can find a synthesis between your view and my view, or some way to improve the models that we're working on. So he's very, very much a pacifist in science, which as a biographer, right, occasionally is, is a bit of a letdown. I mean, a nice, uh, a nice comeback from him would have, been, would have perhaps been sexier, but it, 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 it characterizes who he was, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the personal element of science for him had to, to go to the background. We had to talk about, as, as Professor Heckman also emphasized, the data, the models, and finding a language that you and I shared, even though we belonged in very, very different camps or we lived on another part of the world, we had to find a shared language uh, in which we could talk with one another. Another theme, where a uh, good reason for people to read the book, is that, um, as you just said, there was 
also in his work sort of a, sh a, a shaping of the, how we look at the economy. Jim was also referring to that. And uh, first he was really looking at it as a natural scientist was looking at it, but he's actually uh, most uh, deepest impact was his formulation of economic policy, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so there's basically, and, and I think this is at, on a conceptual level, I like to think that this is not always appreciated about Tim Bergen's work, that in the 1930s, he's a business cycle theorist. And everybody in the 1930s in, in economics was a business cycle theorist or a business cycle empir empirical person. They were all studying the Great Depression in, in, in one way or another. But whereas those models were continued by many people, many of the people that were mentioned, uh, Lawrence Klein perhaps most prominently among them, but indeed also from other sides with Milton Friedman, uh, that was not true for Tim Bergen. So Tim Bergen uh, sort of said, okay, yeah, it's interesting to describe and analyze the economy, but our real goal is to, to direct it in the most desirable uh, direction that we can think of as a society. So yeah. he didn't want to impose that, right? That, that's the neutral expert in him. He, he, he wanted not to impose which direction it should go, but he said, our model should enable us to steer the economy, to shape, to shape it so that it leads to just outcomes or to growth. But it was at that time unheard of, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, but even, even the 1930s uh, evolution is, is sort of radical in the sense that many people have studied this. In The word the economy didn't really exist before yeah. the 1930s. So there were various industries and there were financial markets and there were... Right, industrial markets, but there was no the economy. And so the 1930s invention, which I think was more Keynes doing perhaps than his, was to invent or imagine the economy. But then the 1950s step was to imagine it as a system that you could steer, yeah. right, in the famous language of his, of instruments and targets, that you could steer it in a direction that you wanted to. So there's a sort of dual revolution in first imagining the economy as an object and then also imagining how we could operate it. Yeah, so when I started studying in the 70s economics, I didn't know any better. That's the way we looked at it as a machine eh, that you could steer with targets and, and knobs to, to turn on. And um, Esther, Miriam, uh, you also, uh, you studied in the United States. Eh? You were at Stanford uh, working with Arrow. You studied the work of Sargent. Then you came back here to the Netherlands, uh, developed your interest in, among others, behavioral economics. Uh, you are also now a policy maker, or at least you are in the, the Senate or the Dutch Senate. So you're politically active. And you did also serious conversations uh, among, uh, about the work of, uh, of Tim Berger, including a conversation with Jim Hackman. Now, I wanted to ask a second question, Jim Hackman. I'm asking you that now. Um, because uh, Jim Hackman is University of Chicago. And isn't it true that the University of Chicago is part of the undoing of the legacy of Tim Berger. It was the whole idea that you model the economy was declared basically mute uh, by the Chicago economists, including Sargent and Lucas, of course. Isn't that the case? Uh, there are many, many elements in your question. I'm going to respond to a few of those. Yeah. Uh, one is a, a big difference in the tradition in the Netherlands and in the United States. Uh, in the Netherlands, I was trained in the Tinbergen uh, fashion. And then I came to Stanford and my instructors there were not interested whatsoever in policy recommendations. Uh, they were interested in fascinating mathematics and uh, you know, they were willing to help with the mathematics, but not with the uh, assumptions or with the applications. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the reasons I was thrilled to go back to the Netherlands, to be in this 
uh, environment in which economics and policy interact. And I think one of the legacies in which uh, Erwin describes in his book is the influence that Tim Bergen had on the institutional landscape we have in the Netherlands with the special position of the uh, Netherlands Bureau for Economic Policy Analysis, the special uh, position of the Central Bureau for, for Statistics. That's quite unique that we give a role to those institutions in guiding us in policy uh, directions. So that's part of the answer to your question, yeah. but that was more because of your introduction than yeah. because of what you mentioned later on. Um, yeah, then if you look at the discipline of economics and how it changed from Tinburg and to Chicago and to the present day situation, you see in Tinburg and in the early Coles Commission, this wish to connect theory and uh, policy, theory is measurement. And then later on, Coles changed its motto to theory and measurement. And if you look at the economics profession now, I would characterize it as a profession that has made an applied turn uh, that looks at several elements of the economy in great detail, comes up with fascinating findings like Angus Dietzim, whom we interviewed for yeah. the book, uh, you know, things that you wouldn't think of in your armchair of theory. Um, but that is quite different from the earlier inspiration of Timberg. And so you see a, a drifting away from this building of bridges between theory and policy and ap application and data towards more of an applied turn looking at several separate elements of the economy. You, you are a member of the, the party that uh, also Timberg was a uh, member of, right? Is, that, is Timberg still important uh, in the party of... Uh, of the, the party of the labor, as we yes, would say. Yes, yes. Uh, in fact, when I was reading uh, the, the, the great book that Erwin uh, wrote, uh, it, it, it did, I, I had to do some soul searching and because I was inspired just like Timberg in wanting to improve the world. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. I, I come from a background where, you know, soberness and uh, moral duty play an important role. Also religious? Not religious. Uh, so I saw I saw many connections, and it also uh, forced me to rethink. You know, am I at a point in my career where I'm living up to those ambitions that I had, that Tim Bergen had, and what steps do I need to undertake to uh, live up to the uh, you know, the high standards that I started out with? Yeah, I was inspired by Tim Bergen not to take a car. <laughs> I didn't live up to that promise. <laughs> I was just realizing I should get rid of my car to honor but, his. But I uh, think one other thing, because it's interesting that you mentioned also your own career switch, is that for numerous times he could have, in my, in my sort of imagination, could have lived the professor's life. Mm -hmm. And he repeatedly chose not, not to, to live yeah. the celebration. He could have gone to Harvard, right? He could have gone to Harvard, which for us Dutch people perhaps feels a little bit like, right, the, the good life of the professor. I'm not sure whether, whether that would have, would have been fully true, that would have been breaking with a lot of things, but it was also moving in sort of topics, setting up new institutions, thinking, okay, I've done this very well, that means that there's a new moral duty for me somewhere else, mm -hmm. and so I should move on. And the, the amount of times he did, even at 50 and 60 years old, is, is yeah, it was truly... Uh, Inspiring. Yeah, Philip, Hans, uh, yeah, you you were instrumental of getting this book uh, also done, right? I mean, you were really you were the dean here of the economics faculty, and you decided this had to be done. Uh, were you aware what that uh, of what it would lead to? Were you already did you know Tim Berger? Were you familiar with his life? I'm f familiar with his um, uh, life. 
due to a former book written by Albert Jolink on, uh, yeah. on Tinbergen. That's more on the personal uh, life. I met Tinbergen once when he visited the Tinbergen Institute yeah. and after him and in the building close to the, to the river. Um, in 2017, I think, uh, Erwin started to, uh, to write his book. Before that, there were already plans to have something like that. And in those days, we thought it would be nice if we could combine it with celebrating his uh, first Nobel Prize 50 yeah. years before, in 1969. And the lucky coincidence was that we invited uh, Esther Duflo to be one of our honorary doctorates. And just right that year, in 2019, she got a yeah. Nobel Prize yeah, for economics, was, uh... also on topics that really address well, what, what Tinbergen also addressed. Yeah. Using modern techniques, perhaps simpler econometrics with, with uh, all kinds of random control experiments, very, very well written uh, pieces. So it all came very nicely together. We would have liked, of course, in the same, very same year to present this book, but you know, I also have written a few books and it takes always longer than you think. But I think the end result is way um, deserving this uh, this uh, time. This is a marvelous book. As I said, I read the Dutch version, not yet the English one, but it's extremely well written. It's very inspiring. And you are uh, what you could say a contemporary economist. Uh, do a lot of research. Uh, do a lot of econometrics too. How um, how do you relate to uh, Tim Berg's legacy? I once interviewed you when you were a graduate student still. Uh, for oh. the book about uh, Tim Berg that ah. I wrote then. Yep. You were one of the students, uh, I think, in my sample. Um, and, uh, <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, I, I identify you more as an American-oriented economist. Is that right? Mm, not so much. I think we are still working today in, in the spirit of Tinbergen. Yeah. Um, um, business cycles, still very, very actual. Um, the main thing, I think, what is the difference is that the world has become much more complicated than it was yeah. in the 50s. Uh, so I think, in, I do not know by heart, but maybe his models have a few equations and the ones where the um, Central Planning Bureau in the Netherlands works with is a 2000 plus set of equations, where even after the recent recession, people said there's a block of finance missing. So something like 500 equations are uh, lacking still. Yeah. And that's, well, that's of course very interesting and intriguing. Um, and people still try to work in similar ways to have methods and techniques to reduce poverty, as the flow, but also to forecast better, to control the business yeah. cycle, to reduce its, uh, the uh, oscillations. So it's still uh, alive. Still very much, uh, and that is what I find that, that uh, comes together with what Esther Miriam said. It's quite amazing that uh, the institutions that you mentioned, they're still here. Yeah. And they're still, um, I, I also presented this to a Chinese audience, and they are still independent. Yeah. So we have the modelers, the forecasters, the policy makers, and they are different people. Yeah. And um, still up to date. And we even have the SER, which is a, a, a committee that which is involves... Which impossible to explain to Americans. That's, that's a committee that involves unions and employers. Yeah, together. And they, and they yeah. do not seem to fight. They make... Yeah. Solutions and they're presented to, they're to government. They're called social partners. So the whole, yeah. um, say, the, also the, the well, the sympathetic part of Tinberg, yeah. and I sense still, well, around us uh, today. Yeah, because um, uh, Aaron, now we talk about how great and nice and good uh, Tinberg was, but in your last chapter, you had also some qualifiers that there is also reason uh, that Tinberg could get also somewhat disappointed. So what what was what is your message there? Um, well, I think I think there's there's two points. I think 
One, one point on development economics. I think development economics, as he practiced it in the 1960s and 70s, has not had, is certainly not enjoying a good reputation, but I think also in hindsight was, uh, when you look back at it, was often misguided. It was very, very top-down, which by Tim Bergen's own standards in some sense was not okay. Like I, I show in the early part of the book that it grew out of social movements, out of an intimate knowledge of the problems. And in the, in the development economics, that goes missing. So he was, he was a little bit of fish out of a water abroad. Um, and so in the developing countries, there, there's, people always ask about, and what about Albert Hirschman? Albert Hirschman is famous for having lived in nearly every South American country and then having an sort of intimate knowledge of the social norms and, and all the, the different groups in those societies. That was not true for Tim Bergen. So I think uh, if we look back at his development economics, we see that he lacked some of the intuition and some of the, the, the non-measurable knowledge, perhaps, that made him um, such, such a great economist in the Netherlands. And then secondly, I think there's real questions that we should ask about um, the way he institutionalized um, expertise. So, so indeed, in the Netherlands, it's, it's unique. We have the, these expertise institutions. Um, but you also see that uh, an, an economic expert, and that is how I present Tim Bergen, somewhere between academia and the policymakers, and always trying to build that bridge, um, had a tendency in him, even though, even despite all his modesty and all his personal qualities, qualities had a tendency in him to ultimately want the expert, wanted, he wanted to have the experts have the last word. Um, and that didn't always match with what society wanted. And in the 1950s and 60s, there was a sort of general belief that we're, we are going, going to build a great society together. But in the 1960s, when the revolts happened, the student revolts, he, he is upset. He doesn't know what to do. And in fact, then his, his sort of, um, yeah, his response, his, his intuition is to fall back on more expertise. So the problem that things are not going as we had planned is because we didn't have enough expertise or we didn't know all, all, all that we had, we should have known. And I think perhaps that is a moment that he should have thought, well, for, for me, the place is now humility and it's listening again. I should go, go out again and understand what, what this revolt is about. And I think that's also a lesson for today if we think about expertise today, right, which is sometimes challenged for, from all sorts of angles. Our response should not be, oh, then we need more equations or we need more, more expertise or we need better measurements. Sometimes it's also then important to go back and listen, like he did in his early parts of his, his, uh, his career, and to, to also think of our role as economists not mainly working in service of the state, as Tim Bergen did more and more, but also working in service of society. And he sometimes, he did not always, I think, walk the right balance on that front. Yeah, because it was interesting in your response also, Simeon, because the role of the expert is really under, yeah. under question. Now, we don't even have to talk about the United States, but I rarely see people like you or uh, Philip Hahn uh, on television uh, being asked uh, what we think. Uh, is that your experience too? And um, what does that mean? 
for the longest time, the economists were the experts because they were the hardest of the social sciences, uh, scientists. Uh, they all came with physics backgrounds, actually going back to Edgeworth. Yeah. So uh, Tim Bergen is not the first one and certainly not the last, von Neumann with yeah. uh, game theory. Uh, so for the longest time, economists were able to present themselves as the hardest of the social sciences. But then we got difficulties like uh, the uh, recommendations in the Vietnam War yeah. that uh, didn't quite uh, come out, uh, you know, right. Schelling's role That's in the right. Vietnam War, yeah. uh, the stagflation in the 1970s. Um, so now you see the expertise being uh, shifted. Uh, in the Netherlands, it's not only the Netherlands Bureau of Economic Policy Analysis, but it's also the Social and Cultural Planning Bureau. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's also the Plan Planning Bureau for the Environment. Yeah. Um, and that uh, is parallel to a development where we're not only looking like President Kennedy did to gross domestic products and economic growth, but we're looking at well-being in a broader perspective. And I think with that broader perspective on well-being, it's also good to look at a broader a range of expertise, not only from the economists, but also from the other uh, actors. Who, and Tim Berger would have agreed with that, don't you think? Well, I'm, I'm actually, I, I, I was going to uh, ask Erwin okay, this. Ask you know, do you think that Tim Bergen would approve, would approve of this switch towards a broader sense of well-being, uh, switch towards various agencies playing a role in policy making? Yeah, yeah, yes, very much so. So on the Social, uh, Social and Cultural Planning Bureau, there was actually a cultural department at the, the Planning Bureau for Economics, which didn't really take off and which ultimately was, was terminated. So he already had an eye for that. And later on, he also wanted to include, especially psychology. He always looked at the psychologists as somehow being good at measuring things. And I think if you now look back at what happened in economics, it's interesting that's also the psychologists were the ones who were finally able to breach the, the thick walls of, of economics, right? And find an entry point also later in happiness research. So I think there's an appreciation for it. But Tim Bergen had one, <laughs> one standard, one defining feature. You had to be able to measure it. And if you weren't able to measure it, then scientifically it couldn't count. However important it was, and he recognized it to be in his own life, it, you had to measure it in order for it to count scientifically. And that, yeah, that sometimes, right, that steers where you look. Uh, and I, I think as, as critical economists, we know that all too well, but that sometimes means that we look in places that are easier to measure and don't always look in the other places. But yes, he was, he was already thinking about broader senses of, measure, of, of welfare and well-being, but only <laughs> to the extent that they could be measured. Oh, I just wanted to reaffirm this point about uh, Tenbergen's interest. I was going to refer to the work in the 1960s and 70s that was inspired by Tenbergen by people like uh, Bernard von Prague and others. Mm -hmm. They were working with Tenbergen. They came up with measures of utility. And exactly, I remember when they came through University of Chicago, for example, they were li literally trying to think about measurement utility for precisely this purpose. It wasn't just utility of a particular good, but the utility even of society at large. So there was an attempt, I think Tenbergen, but it was a measurement framework. And if you look at it, you can see he developed, Ben Prague and his co-authors, uh, developed a whole set of tools. And you can see it, they're in, they're in print today, uh, left over, and I would call that an early precursor of the happiness literature. And for that matter, even Frisch, you know, was deeply concerned about the measurement of utility for precisely the point of view of going beyond just looking at bundles of goods, but thinking of broader notions of happiness. So 
Uh, I think it's uh, been a concern for uh, quite a while, and I think Tenbergen was active in fostering research on it. Thanks. I have, your, comment. I have a question by, uh, of uh, Daniel Verheemert, uh, directed both to you, uh, uh, Professor Heckman, and to, uh, to Erwin. Um, uh, what uh, Daniel uh, remarks is that uh, Tim Berge and you yourself, uh, Jim, have added greatly to the toolkit uh, that economists have to find the truth. Uh, we seen, have seen since then lots of tools being added, uh, including uh, um, neuroeconomics and RCTs. And um, the question that Daniel has, he, they want you to look into the future. Um, uh, and actually, the question is, what would Tim Berger be working on today? <laughs> so, 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 so let me let, let me let me start on on, on that one. But I, I think one thing I note in the book is that he wanted to develop a scientific measure for sustainability. So this this is once once again such such an example of. So this is an important normative concept, right? That everybody is using. Um, as a concept and is also using as a guiding principle. But in order to truly work as a guiding principle, Tim Bergen felt that you had to develop a, a measure of sustainability. And already in the, in the early 90s, he, or already, that was the very end of his life, but um, by now it, it's, 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 it's about 30 years ago. And he published uh, a, a method that was, I think, somewhat data intensive, if, if, that, if that's a word, right? It required a lot of estimations of, of various projects. Um, but that was an attempt to measure how sustainable the economy was at the moment and um, how we could work toward making it more sustainable uh, through measure, right? By, by, by measuring the impact and especially the compensation projects that we did. So if you think of right now that we, we buy an airplane ticket and some trees will be planted, right? That's the sort of thing he had in mind. And then the natural functionings that our generation had, we had to transfer to the next generation. And so he wanted to provide a scientific measurement for, for how to do that. And Jim, do you have an idea? Well, I think the theme that's been sounded throughout this whole discussion is that of measurement. Yeah. And my guess is now that he would be delighted with the whole set of tools that have emerged, not just in econometric methods, uh, you know, data learning, new machine learning technology, but new ways to elicit things like not just preferences, but to capture moods, to capture, and I think to capture the well-being. One project that Tenbergen was interested in, and certainly Frisch was interested in, when he used the concept of social welfare function, he wanted to quantify that function. I think he would still be interested in trying to capture a richer notion and my guess is, because of the developments that have occurred in the last 50 years or so, that he would be very interested in trying to understand the heterogeneity and diversity that characterizes preferences and characterizes the competing policy visions of different, across different groups. From what I can see in his writings, he was conscious of that, but he had some very crude data when he was writing. But he mentioned these he mentions these things in his books on income and equality, the competing visions and so forth. So I think I would guess that would be one key goal that he would have to try okay. to quantify more deeply as, and then use that quantification to guide policy. Uh, I think that would be something very, very, I'm not sure how we would look into the political economy 
that's currently practiced. And I think he would probably find it interesting and might participate in it, but I don't see a lot of shreds of thinking. Maybe Urban has this uh, some 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 knowledge of that. I don't think there's a, I don't know of any body of work that he wrote on particular of the democratic process and how social decision-making. I don't know how he took even Arrow's impossibility theorem in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, the, the, the welfare function was central to his work. I mean, he talked about it. He wanted to quantify right. it. He did. And so did Frisch, as a matter of fact, try to. But the, I think he would probably want to go further in understanding the political economy of, yeah. of, of, of choice and, and, and debate. Thanks. I have, uh, we almost come to the end. Uh, two short questions, two no, long questions, but short answers, please, Erwin. Uh, there's one question about uh, his switch. Uh, he, he is a physicist, and social engineering doesn't come natural to physicists. But in a way, that's the story that you tell, right, that he made that switch. Yeah, so, so, so I think this is one of the things that, that is indeed somewhat puzzling. He, he studies with Paul Ehrenfest, who is a very theoretical physicist, so really thinking about models and fundamental explanations about how the world works, which is very far away, right? Natural science can be used to develop technology, but that's not really where he was. Uh, he was close to a lot of friends who studied at Delft, yeah. and which is much more an engineering school. Um, and I think it's also important to, to take into account that even at that right, early period, this, this was not yet a university, but this was a school of economics <coughs> founded by right, industrialists and traders uh, in, in the city. So there was a practical bend to it. And that shows also in the, uh, in the institute that actually uh, gets a lot, of, uh, a lot of attention in the book, the Netherlands Ec Economics Institute which is basically economic consultancy before the word consultancy uh, 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 exists. And so, so there's a sort of practical side to it. And that, those were also the people who inspired him. Philips, Stork in the Netherlands, Henry Ford, if you think internationally, industrialists who were able to make things happen and thereby improve the world. And not so much the, yeah, the, not the socialist dreamers, but the socialist doers, if you like. We have to conclude. I would like to um, finish by thanking Esther Miriam Sint for uh, contributing to this uh, discussion, to Jim Heckman, of course, for your uh, very lively uh, int introduction to uh, and also clarification of the book. Thank you very much. And I also wanted to thank you because you made this possible. You put your heart and also your resources to make this possible. But most things, I think on many behalf of many, is uh, to Erwin to bring uh, Tim Berg alive in this great book. I think we owe you a lot for the hard work you did. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Mid-Air Machine, and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Noble Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, cetrusneverparabus.net, for more information. Follow us on Twitter, cetrusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.